Hello, and welcome to another EULA Live podcast series conversation. I'm Daniel Sarmiento, editor-in-chief of EULA Live, and I will be your host. Today, I will be talking with Jim Claus about the reform of the EU treaties from a historical perspective and also looking into the future. I am very privileged to host Jim in this podcast since in the course of his long and fascinating professional career, he has been one of the most experienced high-ranking European officials negotiating treaty reforms, among many other issues. Jim Claus has worked for many years in the EU's top-level decision-making machine. During his time as a diplomat in the permanent representation of Luxembourg before the European communities, he played a key role in the drafting of the Maastricht Treaty at a time in which Luxembourg held the rotating presidency of the Council. He then moved into the European institutions, first serving as the head of cabinet to the Agriculture Commissioner and later President of the European Commission, Jacques Santerre, and then as a close collaborator of the High Representative Javier Solana at the time in which the EU's common foreign and security policy started to take shape. During his time in the Director General for General and Institutional Policy at the General Secretariat of the Council of the EU, Jim participated closely in the successive treaty reforms, including the Lisbon Treaty, whose reforms are in force today. After retiring from his position in the Council, he joined as Secretary-General of the Trans-European Policy Studies Association, a privileged balcony from which to scrutinize and comment on Europe's main political and strategic challenges. In this podcast conversation, we went through the historical developments of treaty change since 1992, but we also talked about the dynamics of treaty reform and of his views on how necessary such reforms are now at the time in which the Union is facing important challenges. Hello, Jim, and thank you for joining us at EULA Live. It's very kind of you to share your time and your thoughts on uh, this very interesting topic and very important topic, is this treaty reform, EU treaty reform, at a time in which we have very important challenges ahead. I would like to start with uh, a little bit of a historical perspective and looking back and going to the Maastricht Treaty. And I think that at the moment we are at a time in which the Union is facing some important existential dilemmas from a rule of law crisis to the first full departure of a former uh, member state, but also some very relevant policy challenges like climate change or a terrific pandemic. In this context, it, it, it's reasonable to look look at the future and see how the Union should be addressing these challenges, but also looking back to see how the Union in the past has faced major change and major challenges as well. And in this regard, I would like to ask you about the momentous changes that took place in 1989 all the way to 1992, and particularly when the Maastricht Treaty was enacted. And at that time, the Union, the, the communities were going through yet another existential crisis after the, the fall of the Soviet Union. But it's very clear now that the member states, they managed to pull themselves together and further integrate with the very ambitious agenda, etc. And seen with the benefit of hindsight, how similar was that momentum during the Maastricht era of treaty change to the times that we're living today? Uh, thanks, Daniel. First of all, I'm very happy to talk to you about the history of uh, European integration and particularly as far as treaty change is concerned. Um, I think... There are some similarities, but I see, first of all, two major dif differences between the situation today and the situation in the 90s. You have to remember that in the 90s, what was happening was less an existential crisis than a challenge. Because don't forget that 
this was a moment where uh, the union was starting afresh. You will remember that in Fontainebleau in 1984, uh, the British rebate question was settled. Then came a new commission with President Delors and the new concept, which was the single market, which everybody could subscribe to. And the single European Act was the first major treaty reform after the Rome Treaties. At the same time, Spain and Portugal entered in 1986, and that was a very positive development. Some people had feared, particularly the French, for instance, who were worried about agriculture. But actually, I think the uh, entry of Spain and Portugal was a very positive moment and created more dynamism. And that is why very soon after the Single European Act, there was something quite revolutionary happening. The Germans were beginning to be ready to talk about an economic and monetary union. They had adamantly refused to even refer to monetary issues in the Single European Act. Two or three years later, the then German uh, foreign minister published a paper where he was calling for monetary union. So this is the kind of spirit we were in. And then what happened, of course, was the fall of the Soviet Union and the prospect of reunification for Germany. Now, you talk about an existential crisis. Actually, uh, I think this was, this was a victory for the European Union and for the uh, West, generally speaking. It was a moment of hope elation even. Now, there were, of course, challenges. I mean, you remember the initial reaction by Mitterrand, who went to eastern Germany at some stage for a very controversial visit. Mrs. Thatcher was very critical about the idea of unification. The Dutch prime minister, uh, Mr. Lubbers, called in the German ambassador when Mr. Kohl had published his 10 points plan for unification. So it was, of course, very important at that moment to make sure that German reunification would not lead to a German Europe, but would lead to a European Germany. And that is very much what Helmut Kohl was after. With the full support, I also have to say this in this context, with the then Bush administration uh, in the United States, saw this as a great opportunity and was very helpful in all of this. And that is why, while the decision to have a, an IGC about monetary union had already been taken in 89 in June, in Madrid, incidentally, it was then decided, and this was very much a request by Helmut Kohl, that we should add an IGC on the political union because he wanted to make sure that he was ready to give up the DMARC. Huge step, even sacrifice. But he wanted to be sure that at the other side there was a political union developing. And this is why we had a second IGC and the two IGCs together led to the Maastricht Treaty. So I would again repeat, this was a thrilling time, a feeling of new departure. Today, of course, we are much further, thanks to the Maastricht Treaty, we are much more integrated, we have done an enormous amount of things, but the crises which we have lived since 2008 are more existential in my view. The migration crisis was really very difficult. The subprime crisis was definitely a major challenge. And of course, not to talk about uh, COVID. So in that sense, I think in a way the situation today is more difficult. There is a second difference uh, I want to very quickly add here, and that is the following, and that's directly linked to treaty change. At the time of Maastricht, for the objectives we wanted to give ourselves, we needed treaty change. We needed the Single European Act to push ahead with the Single Market Programme. 
we had to introduce more qualified majority voting and a certain number of measures. We needed a treaty to create a single currency. You could not have done this without the treaty. We needed a treaty change in order to integrate CFSP and Justice and Home Affairs into the treaty, albeit as intergovernmental pillars. So in other words, that was a time when we needed treaty change objectively. Today, I think it's slightly different because we have had a long string of treaty changes between 1985 and 2009. There is no absolute need for any of the objectives we are now having to fundamentally change the treaty. The treaty is far from perfect. We can come back to that later. But it provides you the possibility to act, as we've shown in 2020, for instance. So today, I think in that sense, a treaty change, I see it differently from the 90s. Now, very quickly, if you allow me, uh, because you also ask about the assessment of the treaty, I think Maastricht was the most important uh, treaty uh, since the Rome uh, treaties. Why? For basically one fundamental reason. In many ways, with the creation of the single currency, it was a crowning moment for economic integration. There were, of course, many other things. For instance, again, uh, Philippis Gonzalez's idea about citizenship, very revolutionary at the time, was introduced. And then there was another major reason, and that is that it was the founding moment in many ways to launch a new journey towards foreign policy, justice and home affairs, internal security and all of that. So if you look at that together, it is for me one of the founding treaties, actually. So, And I think everybody today recognizes uh, that uh, this treaty has actually fundamentally shaped the European Union and continues to do so. Now, if this treaty, which was enacted at a time, as you're saying, of great hope, rather than the an existential crisis, it is indeed a success. And I think that now if we look back, we can we can actually affirm that the Master Treaty was a success. But at the same time, that success sometimes eludes the fact that there was a, a rather strong backlash shortly after the signature of the Master Treaty. There was a very dramatic and closed referendum in France, a negative referendum in Denmark, the first openly Eurosceptic judgment of an important court like the German Constitutional Court arrived soon after. How do you view the legacy of the Maastricht Treaty, taking into account that backlash, which in a certain way, we are still feeling the echoes of that backlash nowadays? How do you see the Maastricht legacy taking into account these elements? And do you think that those lessons were have been learned uh, when future and later treaty reforms took place? Daniel, excellent question. I'm not entirely certain the lessons were learned if I uh, look at what happened later with the constitutional treaty. But let me explain myself. Uh, my first remark to say is that the backlash which you referred to uh, and which, of course, happened and was quite a strong backlash, is, of course, linked to the ambition of the Maastricht Treaty. Now, what is really interesting is, and uh, I was sitting in all those meetings, I was at the time the right hand of the Luxembourg permanent representative who chaired the meeting at the senior uh, civil servant level. What was really infra interesting inside the room at the time of the negotiation was the mood 
amongst those insiders in Brussels was upbeat. I, for instance, remember, you know, that the Danes have always been fairly sceptical as far as the EU is concerned. At that time, the Danish representative, Mr. Riberholt, was one of the most gung-ho members of the club. And the Secretary General of the Council was a man called Mr. Esper, who was Danish, and who was very much pushing in this direction. So it's really interesting. And what was also interesting is that within the bubble here, the criticism I heard during the negotiation was, why are you not more ambitious? Why don't we go further? I mean, the pillar discussion, for instance. Why do you create an intergovernmental pillar on CFSP? We should integrate it as a community policy. Very interesting. Uh, and by the way, that is the reason why, in fact, already at the time of Maastricht, it was decided to have a new IGC in 1996 in order to be more ambitious. That was the idea behind it. Then, of course, as soon as the treaty was signed, interestingly, the mood changed, as you've rightly pointed out. It seemed that at least some of the provincial citizens for whom the politicians had been talking thought that we'd gone too far. Uh, the Danes said no, the French nearly did so. In the end, the ob obstacles were, of course, overcome, but it was a close call. And it was also a wake-up call not to take the reactions of citizens for granted. It was therefore also the time when the leaders started talking a lot about the citizen. In my view, they went too far in that because there was then a whole sort of demagogy which was coming up and each time the citizen, the citizen, as if you could define the citizen. But still, it was because they had become really frightened with what happened. Now, in a way, the citizen, or at least those citizens who were critical, had understood maybe better than the people in Brussels themselves that what they had been doing was quite momentous and would lead to momentous changes. Now, were those lessons heeded, I said, as before, I'm not so certain, but we, I suppose we'll come back in the course of the discussion about what happened with the constitutional treaty. On the question of the lessons to draw, well, I think for me, certainly in terms of communication, there is a lesson to be drawn. But maybe one other remark I'd like to make. Uh, it's always difficult when you negotiate a treaty to know exactly what the effect will be in the long term. And as I said before, I mean, creating the idea of a single currency was revolutionary. Now, there, I think the political will was extremely strong. But the people who negotiated this were very much aware that there were some problems with it. For instance, the discrepancy between the monetary part, which was totally integrated, and the economic one. We knew it, but we couldn't do anything about it because, for instance, Germany would never have accepted that at the time, nor other member countries. So it took the crisis in 2008 to start remedying this much later. How about the following treaty changes? Uh, how about Amsterdam and Nice? There were some important developments that took place then, uh, concerning the community pillar structure, as you've mentioned before, CFSP took important steps forward. Also, the, the double majority in the council voting system, etc. How do you view those, before we get to the constitution, how do you view those two reforms that took place so shortly after Maastricht? Very quickly. I think we have a cycle. You have to see in one cycle, Maastricht, Amsterdam and Nice. It's clearly belong together. The founding trade treaty is Maastricht. And uh, Amsterdam uh, and Nice were follow-up treaties. Actually, so much follow-up treaties, as I said before, 
it was decided in Maastricht to have a new one in 96. And there was a protocol added to Amsterdam, which said that very quickly afterwards, we should have yet another one to tackle issues. Very quickly, in a nutshell, I think Amsterdam was a very useful treaty in that it was following up to Maastricht. It, of course, introduced more QM. V, more co-decision, etc., strengthened the position of the president of the European Commission, integrated visas, asylum and uh, immigration into the treaty, and also Schengen, quite importantly. And very importantly, it created an institutional uh, system to actually implement CFSP and DSTP. Because, as you know, in this area, the Commission does not have the leading role they have in the other policies, so you need it. That's why the HR, the High Representative slash Secretary General, was created. And there was a whole set up, a military committee in the coming years, which was set up, a civil committee, an, uh, an état-major européen, and all kinds of things like that. So uh, that was very important. As far as NIS is concerned, in a nutshell, I would say this was the zero-sum game treaty. Why do I say this? I say this because those areas which were being looked at were the areas which they hadn't been able to agree in Maastricht nor in Amsterdam. And they were very tricky issues like number of commissioners, weighting of majority voting, numbers of members of parliament. Now, those are issues which naturally pit small against big, which pit Belgium against Holland which pit France against Germany as well, inside the groupings. It's a zero-sum game. And it was interesting. The lesson I draw from this is never do a treaty where you only have mainly zero-sum game issues because it leads to huge divisions. This treaty negotiation lasted for five days, but for a result which was actually puny compared to all of that. So this, for me, is one of the uh, very important lessons which we should draw from the Nice Treaty. And of course, dissatisfaction was very strong at the time because people felt this was not the right way to do it. You had to do very obscure deals, for instance, for the Belgians to be satisfied to give a bit more weighting to the Dutch. The Belgians got the uh, the assurance that all the meetings with henceforth of the European Council take place in Brussels and things like that. So, and 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 finally, the problem with Nizos, there was not one unifying idea behind it. It was a kind of hodgepodge of various small things, plus the really difficult ones. So uh, this was not a good treaty at all. And uh, that is why people thought we have to do something different after. So I guess that, that leads us to the convention and to the convention method and that also leads us to the constitution, to the failed constitutional treaty. It's interesting to see that also in the year in which the convention started to work, there was a lot of enthusiasm surrounding the project of having a, a sort of constitutional convention taking place. And here I, I would ask a very straightforward question to you. Mm. What do you think that went wrong with the constitutional treaty? This is a very good question. Let me first say that if you say it was a failure, yes, of course, the constitutional treaty was a, a failure in the sense that it wasn't adopted. If I look back with a certain distance, overall, I do not think it was a failure because the Lisbon Treaty rescued most of the substance of it. And secondly, the convention as a method as such had actually worked and delivered something quite interesting. For, in my view, this was more a failure of communication, or I should say rhetoric the rhetoric being used, than on substance. The convention was influenced a bit too much 
in my view, by the dominant personality of Giscard, you know, who saw himself as the founding father of Europe. He was always talking about the founding fathers of the American Revolution. And it was also dominated by a very vocal European parliament. So the rhetoric reflected this. And it had already started, I must say, with the Lacan Declaration, which launched the convention, which was uh, piloted by Mr. Verhofstadt, who is a convinced federalist and who was very much pushing in the way and talking, the citizens, the citizens, the citizens want this and that and that. My question already at the time was, how do you know what the citizens want? And then the very use of the term constitution, of course, in my view, was a mistake. Why? Because if you talk about constitutions, they assign sovereignty. They point towards creating a state, whereas IGC agreements are agreements between sovereign states and nations. At the same time, and for the same reason, the, the treaty was very heavy on symbols. The anthem, for instance, the flag, and all of this. This went down badly with the Dutch and the French. And I have to be honest, if the moment of truth had come in Britain and in a few other countries, I think you would have had the same result, actually, because they then stopped the ratification process. One interesting thing as well is that the constitutional treaty was innovative in the sense that it replaced all the other treaties, which in itself is a good idea. It makes it much clearer, much better drafted and all of that. But there was a snag to it. The snag is that some people discovered things which they thought were new, but had been in the treaties from the beginning, for instance, competition law. So in France, you had a big backlash because they said, oh, you're creating liberalism. It had been in the treaty right from the start. They only hadn't noticed of this. So all in all, I think uh, this was the real problem. And in that sense, I think the lessons of Maastricht were not heeded. Because, again, they started off here with their enthusiasm, which is good. You need enthusiasm, you need a vision, but sometimes you also need a bit of uh, reality. And so, in fact, what happened with the Lisbon Treaty was the symbols were taken out. The term constitutional treaty was dropped. Uh, the term of minister of foreign affairs was dropped. All those kinds of symbols pointing to a bit of a state. And, of course, we reverted to the traditional way of an amending treaty to existing treaties. But if you look at the substance of it all, the creation of the post of the president of the European Council, the high representative, no more pillars, the legal personality, co-decision becomes the ordinary legislative procedure, budgetary equality between the parliament and the council, exit, well, the exit clause was not such a good idea, uh, with the benefit of hindsight, I have to say, Article 7 on values, etc. So it was quite substantial. So uh, with the benefit of hindsight, I would say that this whole period was not wasted. It was not a failure. It has some important lessons. Interestingly, in the treaty, uh, everybody agreed that before major treaty changes, there should be a convention. So it was not per se a criticism of the method. And I think that's quite interesting. The only thing I would say is we should think a bit more, especially in the context of the Conference on the Future of Europe, maybe to find a way of also associating citizens a bit more uh, when we have a convention next time. So shortly after the Constitutional Treaty, we do have this rescue operation that you've mentioned. So since 2009, we have the Lisbon Treaty, which is the reform that we now have in force at this time. But if we look now at the future, it's true that more than a decade has gone by and it looks as if there is no appetite whatsoever for treaty reform. 
But now that the discussions about the conference and the future of the European Union are progressing very slowly, I must say, what are your opinions about the prospects of future treaty change? Do you think that the current treaty revision provisions, which have very onerous rules on unanimity, national ratifications, uh, do you think that those rules are an obstacle for any treaty change in the upcoming years? Or do you think that actually we should just stop and give a break to, to the process? Uh, I have several responses to what you're saying. First of all, I think the unanimity and the ratification procedures, we should not touch them. That's my firm conviction, because I think we would open a can of worms, and I do not know where we'd end there. It is onerous, but because it is onerous, it also binds everybody. And in the end, we manage. When we have to do it, we have always managed to do it. That's my uh, first reaction. My second reaction is, I do not personally think we need treaty change. Now, you say it's 10 years. 10 years is nothing. Treaty changes are like constitutional <laughs> changes in a way. I thought the period 85 and 2009 should be an exception because there was so much to do. But even then, I think it was overdone. You cannot have major institutional questions every four years. It distracts from the real issues and it creates a very inward-looking union. So I think for the time being, we should concentrate on dealing with the major issues we are facing and which it's not the treaty right now which prevents us from dealing with them. And this is what the leaders very clearly said. For instance, in Bratislava, they decided a concrete roadmap on solving problems. Later on, they adopted a leader's agenda to tackle the issues. And for the Conference of the Future of Europe, the view of the Council, at least, is that one should focus on the real issues rather than on treaty change. Start with the issues, les problèmes de société, listen to citizens and all that, and then look at the issue of treaty change. Of course, if it appears that you need treaty change for some reason or other, and not necessarily a comprehensive one. But for instance, if you need treaty change to do a European Union for health, well, we should do it. Incidentally, we did some minor treaty changes in the wake of the subprime crisis, and it was done. We even adopted a treaty outside of the treaties because of the British with the Fiscal Compact Treaty. So uh, for me, this is not the moment now to waste it. We should not exclude treaty change, but we should not start with the wrong end. That is typically the Brussels approach. I do not think, I mean, I should not either talk for the citizens uh, in general terms, but let's put it this way. I think not that many citizens are eagerly sitting in their homes and saying, will the parliament get more power in co-decision? I would like to go now to talk about the treaty amendment process as such. Uh, we've gone through this very interesting historical parcours but if we look now generally at the treaty change process and how the processes take place, as a as an experienced diplomat and European high civil servant, you have a, a, a an incredible professional background and experience in negotiating treaty changes. If you had to explain to a lawyer how the process of negotiating a treaty changes with discussions late at night and agreeing on texts which are poorly drafted in the early morning hours... What what strikes you as most interesting of this dynamic, this process in the wake of elaborating a new treaty? That's a, it's a difficult question because what you describe is basically you describe the DNA of the union. 
a union of states and peoples with many actors, many presidents, many constituencies, a bit messy, lots of debates and negotiations. So late now in sessions, I'm sorry for the politicians involved, but it has to happen. That's the way it works. I'm not worried about that. I agree it's a bit complicated, but I think it's not as complicated as it sounds. I, one of the things in my career which has struck me very much is I'm not a federalist, to be very clear, although I think we need a lot of federal elements in our regime. But not, I'm not for the transformation of the Union into the United States of Europe. Now, I respect the people who are. They are perfectly entitled to that position. What I respect a bit less is those people... I'm not now talking about the Eurosceptics who are against the Union anyway, but the Euro enthusiasts who constantly criticize the Union and base their judgment on the yardstick, not of what the Union is, according to the treaties, but what they think it should be. And so everything is bad because we're not a state. I don't like that. It's very bad for our communication. Uh, so in other words, I think we will have to go on living with a messy system. That is democracy, after all. We are 27 relatively sovereign member states, very diverse. So I do not believe in sort of forcing them, uh, forcing things down their throat, having majority voting on this. I think it will not work. We should waste, we would waste a lot of energy on it. I think we've proven over time that when the going gets rough, we stick together. We've done so in 2020. We've done fantastic things last year. I don't want to go into this. We won't have the time to do this. Uh, my, and my final remark is we have a system of checks and balances, a bit more like the American system than our national parliamentary majorities. The Commission is a very important institution. It's not the European government. The European Parliament is a very important democratically elected body, which has legitimacy. But it's not the sole owner of legitimacy in the European Union. The national parliaments are at least as important and they control the representatives of the member states in the council. So it's a relatively complicated system, but it can be explained. The problem is that sometimes people don't take the trouble to explain it. So I have no miracle solution uh, for how to make institutional change easy. Actually, why should it be easy? I personally tend to believe that constitutions uh, in member states should not be changed too easily. We have some glaring examples of people change the constitution whenever something suits them. I don't think it's a good idea. Jim, it's very tempting for me to make this question, but inevitably I will have to make it. After so many years working in the institutions and going through treaty changes and so closely associated to those treaty changes, can you tell us an event or a situation that you find most telling or worth recalling that actually it's also descriptive of how treaty reform works? Daniel, this is one of the most difficult questions you can ask because the history is so rich that there's not one event. I can give you two or three small, maybe, elements. Uh, the first one is the question of the Hebrews and the Brussels bubble, which I mentioned at the time of the convention. Uh, that, for me, has always struck me. The second one is, look at the role of the Commission. It has been quite varied, and it says a lot about the process. In 1985, the Laws Commission worked very closely together with the Luxembourg presidency because they rightly consider in an intergovernmental conference, it's better not for the commission to be much too much up front. And so they worked hand in hand and it worked very well. For the Maastricht Treaty for reasons which I cannot go into now, the, the law cabinet at the time decided they did not really want to work with the Luxembourg presidency, despite of the promises they made. 
And so it just worked with the Council Secretariat. The Commission put itself outside. And then they came with this battle about the pillars that, you know, you should communitarize everything, which they, of course, lost. And they lost it. And this is interesting because the timing was not right for this. Uh, the question at the time was not, will we have a communitarized foreign policy or an intergovernmental one? The question was, will we have an intergovernmental one or none? So for me, important lesson. And in Amsterdam, where I was a bit responsible for the commission position, we kept in the background. Jacques Santa was actually criticized for not being ambitious enough. But I can now say something which we've never said before, at least not till about a year or two ago. Uh, that is, I myself as chef de cabinet and Carlo Troyan as our secretary general, we spent a week in a castle in Ireland when the Irish did the first draft of the treaty to help them and work together, where we obviously also looked after the interests of the Commission and the Union. And my uh, final remark is the question of the mandate is an interesting one. You know, how you pitch the mandate, for instance, at the time uh, of the launching of the, of the Maastricht Treaty, Thatcher was roundly defeated on the mandate for the IGC, particularly uh, EMU, and it was the end of her political career. Another history about the mandate is how the German presidency in 2007, uh, with the help of the Council Secretariat, decided at some stage not to have the classical mandate, but to have a mandate which actually resolved basically all the problems. And this was a clear sign that the leaders, the heads of state and government, after what had happened before, they wanted to control it and make sure that no political mistakes were made. And it actually worked. Jim, as a final question, we've talked about the challenges of the past and the challenges of the present of the union. I would finalize just asking you, how optimistic are you about the future of the union? Daniel, this again is a difficult question because, I mean, I do not know necessarily more than anybody else, but you may uh, want to know that I have always been considered, despite of my relatively advanced age when I was still active, that I was the proverbial optimist on Europe and always looking at the glass being half full, which is true. Although I am not uh, naive, I think, and I'm not a pure idealist at all, but I think I simply do one thing which maybe people should do more. Even when I'm in the midst of the daily struggle, which often is very frustrating, and you say, how is this thing ever going to move? How are we going to make co-decision function such a complicated issue? I say, step back, look at over the last years what we've done, and then come back. And you see a certain number of things which look small initially, which become very big later on. Now, I give you an example. The vaccine strategy is interesting. It's a bit of a gamble what the Commission has tried and the member countries accepted to do it jointly. It's a bit risky, and you see that now. It could turn against the EU, but it's also possible that in the end all those problems will be sorted out and it will have been a major achievement. So the question of what is historical, it's only history which decides it. So my short answer is, yes, I am. Let's put it this way. It's not a matter of being optimistic or pessimistic. I think that the union has huge potential. I think that it's more resilient than what many people think. And I think that if we invest into, for instance, the debate on strategic autonomy, we have the means to become more autonomous and stronger. So in short, my answer is yes. Thank you so much for that final and very resilient answer. And thank you so much for spending this time with our listeners and sharing your experience and this 
very fascinating parcours through the evolution of treaty change of the recent treaty change, but very important treaty change. Thank you very much, Jim. Thank you, Daniel. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can read much more about EU law in our website. And you can also subscribe to follow all our contents at www.eulawlive.com.